HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. I'm Erin Fairbanks, host of The Farm Report. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Inside School Food, where people working in and around K-12 school food service talk shop about solutions that really work. I'm Laura Stanley. Last week, we kicked off our fall 2014 season with some very meaty conversation about successes and challenges under the nutrition standards mandated by Healthy Hunger Free Kids 2010. School food is undergoing historic change right now in response to these new requirements, and how districts are coping or not coping is the central topic in school food right now. The challenges are so complex, and yet sometimes what you can do to turn things around can be so simple, and that is what we're going to talk about today. Uh, My guests today work with the USDA-funded Smarter Lunchrooms movement at the Cornell Center for Behavioral Economics in Ithaca, New York. Uh, I think many listeners will have heard about Smarter Lunchrooms already, and some of you may already be putting some of their recommendations into practice in your cafeterias. For those of you who aren't familiar, um, what you need to know to get started today is that Smarter Lunchroom strategies are all about point of service how food service interacts with students front of the house. So as today's episode is our first with Smarter Lunchrooms, we're going to begin with Kate Hoy, who is the manager of Cornell's Center for Behavioral Economics and Child Nutrition Programs. Um, That's a mouthful. Uh, She calls it the Ben Center. Uh, Kate is responsible for program development, implementation, and evaluation for Smarter Lunchrooms across the country. We're very lucky to catch Kate in her office today because her work takes her on the road a lot. Uh, And after station break, we will be visiting with uh, Marietta Orlowski at Wright State University in Dayton, Ohio, who will talk to us about what implementation of Smarter Lunchrooms looks like in the field in some of the districts where she has been working um, or she's been working with in her state. So good morning, Kate, and welcome to Inside School Food. 
Good morning, Laura. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. Um, so fill us in a little bit about Smarter Lunchrooms. I mean, given how influential you've been, I was very surprised to learn that you've been around only since 2010. How did, how did the movement get started? Um, of course. So the Smarter Lunchrooms movement is actually a product of a USDA grant that um, the Cornell Center for Behavioral Economics and Child Nutrition Programs, or like you said, the, I lovingly call it the Ben Center mm-hmm. because it is a mouthful, um, was awarded to do research in this particular area. So our our primary goal is to provide evidence-based tools to schools um, that can help increase consumption and decrease waste, while also you know maintaining that participation gap. Um, that way we can help to encourage kids to take and eat the helpful foods that we know we're offering in this space. Right. And what's been the reach to date since you started in 2010? Well, we actually just wrapped a study which um, surveyed schools across the country, and we are currently in about 25,000 schools. So almost a quarter of the nation's schools are implementing at least one or, or multiple Smarter Lunchrooms principles. Right, right. That's, that's why I said at the top of the show that I, I think a lot of listeners may have heard of you and may be actually using um, what you have to recommend because that reach is so huge already. Um, but, but tell us a little about what you do. I mean, me, I mean you, Kate Hoy. Why, why do you travel so much? I spend a lot of my time uh, doing trainings for the Smarter Lunchrooms movement. So I go out into districts and to states particularly and provide uh, full-day workshops on how to implement and use behavioral economics in schools and in food service operations as well as doing some evaluation. Uh, We have this amazing tool called the Smarter Lunchroom Self-Assessment Scorecard, and it kind of gives you a numeric value to to look at at what you're doing really well in your schools and and maybe some areas of opportunity to help improve those um, purchase rates for your children. Mm -hmm. So most of my time is spent actually providing trainings, doing evaluations in schools, and then um, educating you know, policy makers in the space to try to encourage the use of behavioral economics principles in right, right. school food. So, so let's, let's take a couple steps back. Like, why is USDA interested in funding research and implementation of be, what we call behavioral economic theory? And, and, and briefly, like, what, what is behavioral economic theory? <laughs> That's a good question. So behavioral economics is something that we're actually all very familiar with. It's just got a fancy term tacked onto it. So behavioral economics is designing the environment so that it encourages the individuals in it to make decisions that you want them to make without them really even knowing it. Mm -hmm. Um, So what we do is we're trying to encourage people to make those helpful choices and then repeat that choice. Um, And the reason why the USDA is really interested in this particular field is because it is relatively cheap for us Mm -hmm. to actually use. Uh, It's been used kind of across the board in most food operations. I think we're all quite familiar with general consumer marketing principles. Uh, But the the USDA is trying to be very proactive in uh, establishing an environment that not only offers helpful foods, but continues to offer choice for their students so that we can build these behaviors from the ground up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and, um, at the Ben Center, you spend a lot of uh, effort – in doing research and then publishing that. So there's a lot of, it's not just strategies, but it's data-driven. Can you talk a little bit about the 
the research you do, it's, it's all online, by the way, and I will give everyone the link on our Facebook page. Yes. Uh, so all of the eight principles that we talk about in the Smarter Lunchrooms movement are evidence-based, which is something that we think is very important because there's a lot of people out there who own kind of the, the food environment. Um, you know, parents, grandmas, everyone's trying to come in and say, well, I know what to eat, so that makes me an expert. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we want to make sure that when we're, we go out into schools, uh, we have over 2,000 schools that have done research with us where we go in and we measure looking at sales records, production records, but also plate waste, because we believe it's not nutrition until it's eaten. So we really want to make sure that the the principles we're giving the schools actually have evidence behind them and can be adopted and used in their spaces effectively. Right, right. So so looking at food service settings, um, this behavior economic theory looks at typical behaviors that are driven by our emotional state. And, and you talk a lot about what you call hot and cold decision-making in, in a food service setting. What's that all about? <laughs> of course. So there are two basic states that we're in when we're making food decisions, like you just mentioned. The hot state, which is a state where we're eating for taste, convenience, size. This is very hedonistic. Um, this is only the bigger the better, right? Only a hot fudge sundae will make me happy. Or a good example is going to the grocery store hungry and without a list. You end up coming out of the grocery store with, you know, microwave burritos and, and, and things that couldn't even make a meal because you were really thinking more about, you know, what can I get that's fast and, and delicious. The flip side of the hot state is something we call the cold state. And the cold state is really eating for price or health information, mm-hmm. or you're thinking about long-term benefits. So what will happen to me if I eat kale every day for lunch? You know, will, will it eventually lead to lower cancer risk or better body weight and cholesterol management? So this is, you know, eating or going to the grocery store with a list and having had a snack. Mm-hmm. So... Um, the, the two states that we're in, it's really kind of interesting because it's either kind of a deliberative state or an emotional state when we're eating. And the problem is it takes us a lot of, a lot of effort to switch from one to the other once we've made the initial jump. Right. And, and are children ever deliberative? I mean, especially when you think about how stressful a school cafeteria is. Absolutely. And, and the thing about the hot and the cold state are these are very rational states for individuals. And so when we think about kids, you kind of have to ask the question, are kids rational? And the most recent research has actually come out showing that kids do not fully develop their frontal lobe until they're almost 21 years old. Right. So as a result, they are totally irrational beings for the entire time that they are in our lunchrooms. Right. So we can't really expect them to act rationally as they're coming through our space. Right, right. So we can use this behavioral economics to really capitalize on the fact that we know that they are looking for taste, convenience, size, you know, visibility, these kinds of things. And then we can use, once they're kind of nibbling on some of these foods that we're offering them, that opportunity to really talk to them about the health information and, and the logic and the education side of things. Mm-hmm. Which will sink in eventually after that frontal lobe cortex is fully developed, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly I mean, right. Yeah, I mean, you think about like a school cafeteria. First at work, as you say, they're children. They have maybe, if they're lucky, 20 minutes to get and eat their food. They're very hungry, it's very loud, and they're rushing to get to the table to be 
with their friends. So, you know, um, it's, it's a very overwhelming setting and overwhelming for staff too. And yet Smarter Lunchroom's strategy is all about low overhead and low or no cost intervention. I mean, it's supposed to be really easy. How, how is that possible? Well, that's because we're really not doing a lot in terms of changing what, you know, like we're not buying equipment and putting equipment in the space. We're actually just reorganizing what's already there and making it so that it is easy or more convenient for our students to pick up. So we use two basic principles when we talk about smarter lunchrooms, and the first is called choice architecture. Mm-hmm. Choice architecture is really what I mentioned earlier. It's designing a choice so that the person will make the decision you want them to make without you ever having to tell them. So, for example, I think we've all done this with small children, but do you want to go to bed now or in five minutes? The decision has already been made, Mm -hmm. right? The child is going to bed, but by providing the opportunity for the student or the child to choose, it empowers them. It makes them feel like they are being respected and they're more likely to repeat that choice. So this is already built into the USDA's regulations. Would you like a fruit or a vegetable on your tray? And that sounds a heck of a lot better than go back and get a fruit. You have to eat it, right? Exactly. You have to eat X, Y, or Z that's on your tray. So we use a lot of choice architecture, which is, you know, just encouraging that, would you like A or B? And this is really cheap for that for us because these offerings are already there in the space. So it's really, it's really just changing what we say to the kids. I mean, that's, that's one of the strategies is just talk about it differently. That's exactly right. And one that doesn't cost anything at all. Not at all. Right. Exactly. Right, right, right. <laughs> and then there's some other basic principles. I know you identify six when you, when you do these trainings. What are some of yes. the other, yeah. The six basic principles include managing portion sizes, Increasing convenience, mm-hmm. improving visibility, enhancing taste expectations, utilizing suggestive selling, which is that, you know, would you like an apple or an right, orange? Right. And then setting smart pricing strategies. And so we talk a little bit about what these six basic principles look like in our space. And, you know, managing portion sizes, of course, um, that's kind of already done for us. By the USDA, you can you can have so much of, of this and so little of X and Y, mm-hmm. but it can be used for good or for evil in our space. So when I talk about choice architecture, we talk about giving kids a choice of something. If we say you can only have X, Y, or Z, it tends to to lead to something we call reactance. Mm-hmm. And reactance is that rebelling against a threat on our freedom. Right. So a really good example of this is, for example, I say you cannot eat cereal. The first thing you think about is cereal. Well, why not? Why can't I have cereal? Is oatmeal cereal? What do do hot cereals count? Grits, right? What's going on? And who made you the king of cereal? Why do you get to choose? (laughs) Right. So when you're thinking about this reactance state, there's a couple other things that we can think about of how we can change that example around. A really good example is in schools, right, when you have ketchup pumps. Mm-hmm. If we're trying to limit the consumption of ketchup, most administrations remove ketchup pumps completely. Mm-hmm. And this actually occurred in a school district in the middle of the country. They removed their ketchup pumps, and they went all the way down to establishing a ketchup Nazi. So they gave one single ketchup packet out to every student that left that line. So there was a staff person on the line handing out one packet per student. 
Correct. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Exactly. So as the students are leaving, they're all getting a single ketchup packet. Now, the kids obviously reacted. This is the reactance piece of things. And there were the obligatory ketchup bombs and, you know, the vandalism that generally is occurring because this is a high school. Mm -hmm. But then you also have young entrepreneurs in the space. And so they start this awesome black market of ketchup. (laughs) Right. So yeah. now we're trading ketchup packets back and forth, and you've established this currency of ketchup in the space. And then we have some kids that are gaming the system completely, and they're like, my mom buys this awesome giant thing of ketchup from Costco. I'm just going to bring it in, yeah. and then that's going to be my solution to the problem. Right. But now we have ketchup in lockers, right? <laughs> the custodians are definitely not happy about this. Mm-hmm. And this goes on for about half the school year, about six months mm-hmm. of this reactance. And then it kind of dies down. So administration is like, we have won. We've suppressed the black market. We can all move on with our lives. Mm-hmm. Well, this is high school. So flash forward to graduation. As students are crossing the graduation stage and receiving their diploma, they hand their principal a ketchup pack. <laughs> and this is a graduating class of about 1,200 students. Yeah. You can only put so much ketchup in your pockets, people, right? So now this problem that was generally a small issue has become a media blitz, right? There's people coming in, and they're calling in, and even parents who have students that aren't even participating in the school food program are calling in because how dare you explain that to my child that they can't participate in that. And I guess there were pictures in the paper of 1,200 packets of ketchup on the stage? Oh, boy, are there. Yes, you could probably Google that. Right, right, right. (laughs) But, yes, so we can use this for good or for evil. So a a good use of choice architecture in this managing portion sizes principle to help limit ketchup could be, for example, moving to ketchup packets, but then also saying, but we also have this great spice bar. Mm-hmm. You should see, you can, have a, you can have ketchup or you can use our spice bar. Mm-hmm. And these spice bars are, are a good opportunity for you. And so the ketchup packet itself is going to limit about 5% of those kids from overdoing it on the ketchup because, you, you know, the tiny little packets, you got to peel them back, all mm-hmm. those kinds of things. But by providing the choice, would you like a ketchup packet or would you like to use the spice bar? It increases the empowerment of those students. And they feel better about the fact that you've limited something because it looks like you're replacing it with another choice. Right, right. And it should be added that that spice bar is like way lower sodium alternatives that we want them to choose. You also mentioned when we talked about this last week about um, installing pumps that give you less ketchup. And, And so the kids can pump as many times as they want, but they also just really want to get on with things. So they're less likely to take as much. That's exactly right. If you're using perhaps a smaller funnel that only allows like a half a teaspoon of ketchup to be dispensed with each pump, that child has then got to make a choice. Do I want to stand here for a half an hour to get a half a cup of ketchup? Or do I want to be satisfied with the two teaspoons I can get and then go (laughs) sit down and enjoy my two teaspoons of ketchup? So manipulative. It's just kind of like good parenting, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Well, a lot of these these principles did come from um, our our primary investigators having children. Right, 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 right. So, but, you know, okay, so maybe, maybe it's it's sort of, you know, lovingly manipulative, but it, but it's also, you know, smarter, there's a lot about smarter lunchrooms that's just really common sense marketing strategy and a kind of shift in the culture of K through 12 food service from, um, you know, from thinking of the kids as just the kids to, to customers. Can you Correct. comment on that? Absolutely. Um, For a long time, school food service has kind of been 
um, a, a secular environment. You know, the, the kids are either there or they're not, mm-hmm. right? So the, this mentality of really having a customer it has really started to develop um, more recently, especially with, you know, the increase in competitive foods and, and the opportunity for students to, to not participate in the programs. And so this reevaluation of our space and, and looking at this as a, um, as a selling opportunity mm-hmm. has really been able to increase the likelihood that students will participate. For example, one of my favorite examples of this is something like our principal enhancing taste expectations. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you look through a lunchroom or when you're looking through a cafeteria, you really do have to examine this like it were a, a grocery store or like it were a space where kids can purchase food. And a lot of the pictures, you know, can you find the fruit in the picture, right? Mm-hmm. You know, take a picture of, of your space. Do you see fruit when you look at your picture? Do you see, you know, colorful salads or do you see entrees that are laid out like you would at a restaurant? Mm-hmm. That's something that can really dictate how much, you know, you think that food is going to taste good or not. In fact, in our studies, just by taking carrots, simple baby carrots, and renaming them as X-ray vision carrots, and putting them in a place that's highly visible, we doubled consumption of carrots. Right. That's just an easy way to highlight, you know, a baby carrot. Right. <laughs> it doesn't take right. a lot of time or effort for you to pull it out to the front and put, and put a fun name on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's marketing. That's fabulous. That's exactly right. Not magic, exactly right. it's marketing. Well, nope. Kate, I'm so glad you're able to join us today. And there's clearly so much more to talk about with regard to this work. So I'm really looking forward to visiting again with the Smarter Lunchrooms team for a deeper dive in future episodes. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank uh, you for having me. Yeah. Uh, but listeners, this, that's, this is not to say we're done for today. We have been mm-hmm. speaking with Kate Hoy, who is manager of Cornell's Center for Behavioral Economics and Child Nutrition Programs. We're going to take a quick station break now, but do stay with us because we're going to Ohio next to learn about how smarter lunchroom interventions have impacted participation in select school cafeterias there. You are listening to Inside School Food on the Heritage Radio Network. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Are you a locavore? Our Northeast Regional Forager for Whole Foods Market sure is. She spends her time traveling around the New York City metro area sourcing the best new or interesting artisanal and handcrafted local products for our purchasing teams at the local store level. Part of our commitment to our local suppliers includes assisting them with the process of getting their products sold at our stores. Whether it's suggesting packaging designs, pricing, or distribution methods, she's helping some of the area's best new products reach savvy shoppers at Whole Foods Market stores. Today, New York. Tomorrow, the world. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. You're listening to Inside School Food. Today, we're taking our first look at the Smarter Lunchrooms Movement, a program of the Cornell Center for Behavioral Economics. We just got finished looking at what behavioral economic theory actually is and how uh, careful application of research into how children 
behave in cafeterias can be used to redirect them to healthier choices. This stuff is funded by the USDA because it really works. Um, and our next guest, Dr. Marietta Orlarski of the Boonshoff School of Medicine at Wright State University, Ohio, is going to tell us a little bit about what that looks like in the field. Good morning, Marietta. Good morning. So you've been involved with Smarter Lunchrooms for about a year and a half as a project evaluator for a number of sites across Ohio. How many schools are we talking about? Uh, We recruited 50 schools in our first cohort. Yeah, that's a lot. And then um, within that group, you've got a pretty good cross-section of different kinds of settings. Is that right? Yes. we, um, We divided our state into four regions, and we recruited schools from each of those regions. So we have a northwest, a southwest, northeast, and a central region. And then we also tried to recruit schools across the different grade levels. Mm -hmm. So half our schools are elementary, and then the other half are middle and high. And then we also paid attention to um, participation in free and reduced. And we tried to, again, stratify across a range of um, participation in free and reduced. So, yes, we really did get a good cross-section across the state. Right, right. And this this kind of diversity is important to, to the data that Smarter Lunchrooms is collecting, right? Yeah, I mean, these schools are very different, and so we wanted to, uh, we kind of call ourselves a dissemination project where Mm -hmm. we are taking these evidence-based strategies that the Ben Center developed and kind of putting them out in the field and and, um, seeing what disseminates what works. And so having uh, representing having schools that represent Ohio were important to our strategy. Right, right, right. So so let, let's hone in on just a few of your sites, um, and it's the, the schools where you've already been able to observe some really significant outcomes. Um, how about we start with a couple of high schools, since we know that's where the students are the toughest customers? Yeah, we've had a couple um, high schools that really um, had some great outcomes. And again, many of the principles that Kate was talking about, just taking what they had, repositioning, repurposing it, priming students. Um, Two of the schools um, did that with salad bars. They had salad bars. They were new salad bars. They were bright. They were filled with fruits and vegetables, but they just were not being used um, by students. And one of the schools that we worked with, um, Northridge Middle and High School, they had this great salad bar, but it was an older space, and so the salad bar was really the last item in line, mm-hmm. and it was even separated by a metal railing that was used to kind of do wayfinding, direct the line. Mm-hmm. And so it was literally like an afterthought in the lunch line. And so, um, you know, we had explored removing the metal railing um, to give to kind of be able to move it up, and it was just cost prohibitive. Again, we tried to do really affordable strategies. Mm -hmm. So what we did um, is we just moved that salad bar to the the right by two feet and turned it slightly, and it went from being the last item in line to the first item in line. And it just, the, the success was just huge. We went from 10 students using the salad bar a day to an average of 75 students using the salad bar a day. Wow. So that's like 650% just by taking it from last to first. We also did like a kickoff week because it was, it was such a, a new item that um, we sent in graduate students, and they just kind of introduced students to the salad bar. There was um, paw prints directing them, but it was kind of like, hey, this is now the first item in line, and kind of instructing them how they can use it. You can make a salad, you can grab a side, you can make an entree salad, or you can take a taste of anything that you want. And it just, it was a huge success, again, with something that they already had, 
just moved a little bit and given some um, signage. Right, right. And you, you mentioned graduate students. Can, can you talk about that for a minute? These are these are graduate students in the public health program at, at Wright. Yeah, um, I um, we were able to recruit. Um, I had about ten graduate students um, helping me. We did it as a class project, and a couple of them did it as kind of like the research project. But it really was a perfect. Um, learning exercise for them. You know, public health students um, are really trained to think about assessing and evaluating um, population-level interventions, Mm -hmm. you know, that, um, and and this was a population-level intervention that we go in and and we design an intervention that isn't targeted at an individual, it's it's targeting the whole group of students in that building. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But but for them to, to kind of move from the classroom where, where they're looking at all this stuff on paper into the chaos of a high school lunchroom and interact directly with the children and and see how you know how their involvement can impact things. That that's that's kind of a, a defining moment for someone going into this kind of work, isn't it? It was a tremendous learning experience. Right. Um, like you said, we had read the new meal pattern guidelines. They had followed, you know, the the policy changes. Had been reading in the newspaper, but um, going into those environments and having food service directors and teams, you know, take the time to educate the students. You know, they came to appreciate um, the operational challenges to some of these um, new guidelines. You know, feeding. Right. 700 kids in under 200 in under two hours is a challenge and that influences so many of the things that they do that um, you know really got the students to appreciate the context right right I mean that the demands on K through 12 food service are are just so enormous compared to what for instance you'd see in a university um, food service setting um, and you, you gotta you got to experience to, to understand it. Um, so um, let, let's skip ahead. You, you worked with some elementary school too, uh, as well. And um, a- again, the schools identified the priorities that they wanted to work on so they could own the, the work. Um, what, you know, what, what did they want to work on when they signed up for Smarter Lunchrooms? Um, we tracked what schools were interested in and kind of um, what strategies they implemented. And renaming vegetables was by far the most popular um, Smarter Lunchroom strategy mm-hmm. um, implemented. Um, we had a couple schools that we worked with that um, just did a great job. They were targeting the dark greens and the beans mm-hmm. um, and renaming those. Um, one school, um, it was a pre-K, K school, so young kids, they did it as um, class projects. They wanted to engage the kids in the menu and in their food and in the naming. And so they worked with a classroom teacher to do a renaming project. And through this renaming, and then the students voted on election day for uh-huh. the new name. Yeah. This really, this was a, you know, a, a learning center, and they really believed in engaging the kids in the process. Uh-huh. Um, and they, uh, Super Beans was the new name, and then Sparkly Broccoli. Sparkly was, Broccoli. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very cute. Very cute. Age appropriate. Um, right. But it was interesting is, you know, just, you know, engaging kids in the naming, um, unveiling the new name, having the artwork posted when the items were offered, calling the items by that name. It um, it decreased the, the amount of waste um, on the days that those, those were offered. Wow. The broccoli waste went down by, um, you know, 25%, wow. and the bean waste went down by about 12%. Right. So, again, simple strategies, engaging kids um, can influence what they eat. Right. It's just so important to hold on to that because there's so much in the news now about waste that we, you know, we, we, 
believe to be associated, or the press would have us believe is associated with the new um, meal protocol. Um, and, and a strategy, so a strategy like this is so simple, it costs nothing, it gets the children excited, and you have documented that it reduces waste. So it's very powerful. I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and if, let's let's talk about you for a minute, Marietta. Was was this the first time that you ever um, set foot in a school food uh, cafeteria? In a school food ca- cafeteria, yeah. As a professional, I, had... I mean, as a kid, you must have. <laughs> <laughs> of course, yeah. Um, prior to this, I had worked in schools before, but more in the classroom. I had done tobacco prevention and done um, trying to work with classroom teachers to integrate physical activity into the classroom. But this was the first time I had worked in um, school nutrition. Right, right. So it's it's just a, a really great um, collaboration between someone like you and your students and people in K through 12 food service. So I, I, I really look fo- uh, forward to hearing how your work in Ohio progresses. And I, I was just really pleased you could join us today. Thank you, Marietta. Well, I'm happy to join you. All right. So we have been speaking with Dr. Marietta Orlowski from Wright State University in Dayton, Ohio, about the field research and evaluation she has been supervising in Ohio schools on behalf of the Smarter Lunchrooms movement. We have only scratched the surface of this rich topic on today's episode. So if you want to know more, visit Inside School Food on Facebook for a link to an enormous archive of resources, from research papers to PowerPoints to step-by-step instructions for training food service staff in smarter lunchroom strategies. And Inside School Food will certainly be revisiting um, with these great folks um, going forward. You have been listening to Inside School Food. Next week, recipes for reimbursable school meals created by students for students, kids cooking up change for their own lunchrooms in cities across the nation. I am Laura Stanley, and I look forward to welcoming you back. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.